Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Uh, on behalf of the ANU and our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian Young, uh, who had hoped to be here, but as Trish has mentioned, uh, at the last minute couldn't be, um, largely due to commitments in Parliament, I think, uh, but on uh, his behalf and on behalf of University House, of which I master, I also uh, welcome you. I would also like to add my and the University's thanks to the Order of Australia Association, Trish, Len, Peter, colleagues, for organising this important annual lecture series to celebrate the recognition accorded ANU staff members by Order of Australia Awards. This is the fifth uh, OAA ANU lecture, as Trish has mentioned, and I welcome you all to it. Part of the reason that University House was established 60 years ago this year was to facilitate engagement between the work of the university, the research work epitomised by what David's going to be talking about, and the interests of the wider community. And this lecture series, this partnership between uh, OAA and uh, ANU and University House, is an excellent example of one of the ways in which we can work together to give effect to that objective. I conclude by taking the opportunity to congratulate David as a colleague from the ANU and the Fenner School and a researcher whose interests intersect with mine, amongst others, uh, on the recognition of his work uh, in an order of Australia. Congratulations, David, and welcome all. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to call Len Goodmaneo, the convener of the series, to introduce our guest speaker tonight. Thank you, Len. Thank you, Trish, and uh, all our guests. Well, David Lindemeyer is an Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow at the Fenner School of Environment and Society uh, at the Australian National University. Now, this is of special significance to our Order of Australia Association members, as Emeritus Professor Frank Fenner AC was a much-loved member and a regular attender at the events. In fact, he was here at that first one when Professor Ian Chubb delivered the, the lecture. David's written more than 920 scientific articles, including 520 papers in peer-reviewed international journals and 36 books on forest ecology and management forest and woodland biodiversity, conservation in agricultural landscapes, the ecology and management of fire and conservation science, and natural resource management. He's one of the most highly cited ecological scientists in the world, listed in the top 0.1% in his field, and one of less than 1% of more than 15 million scientists globally that publish more than 10 peer-reviewed articles an annually. He was elected Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science in 2008 and is a member of the New York Academy of Science. He's the winner of the Eureka Prize twice, the Whiteley Award six times, and the Australian National History Medal, the Seventy Medal, 
orthology and numerous other awards. The ANU's David's alma mater, graduating Bachelor of Science in 1982, completing a Diploma of Education then at the University of Adelaide in 1986 and returning to ANU to undertake his PhD postgrad scholarship award 1988-89. His thesis title was The Ecology and Habitat Requirements of Leadbeater's Possum, for which he was nominated for the Crawford Prize. David subsequently completed a postgraduate Doctor of Science degree here in 2008. He was awarded the prestigious five-year Australian Research Council Laureate Fellowship in 2013 and was appointed an officer AO in the Order of Australia in the 2014 Queen's Birthday Honours List. He currently runs five large-scale long-term research projects in southeastern Australia, primarily associated with developing ways to conserve biodiversity in reserves, national parks, wood production forests, plantations and on farmland. He believes that by far his greatest achievement has been helping more than 50 students complete their postgraduate PhD or master's degrees. But family also seems high on the Linda Meyer priorities and is well to the fore this evening with his wife Karen and father Bruce leading the cheer squad of several Linda Meyers. A very good sign indeed. David's chosen topic is surely of intense interest as one connected to wider environmental concerns, research and no doubt variety of opinion both here and around our world, which surely qualifies him for the, within the latest media cliche the last couple of days, for mature debate. It is now my pleasure to invite Professor David Lindemeyer, AO, to present the 2014 Order of Australia Association Australian National University Lecture on the topic, Discovering a Lost Forest Giant, 31 Years of, in, of Science in World's Tallest Timber Forest. Thanks, David. Thank you very, thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to give you a vignette of, of 30, more than 30 years of science, which also encompasses a large part of my own life but it also outlines some opinions and some science which some people will find quite controversial, but uh, uh, I'll leave that to you to decide. So what I wanted to do first was to talk a little bit about the, the background to our group uh, of young scientists mainly and what we do, then a little bit of background to the wet forests of Victoria where we've worked for more than three decades, then move to some issues to do with the current state of those forests, particularly after the 2009 fires, then a forest restoration process, which we think is very important for those, those very forests and for the industry itself, and then a vision for those forests in terms of where we think the best outcome for the most people and the best return on the public uh, investment should be. So a little bit of background to our group we do large-scale, long-term projects, as Len was saying. We have projects at Jarvis Bay that look at fire. Uh, now Adrian Manning from the Fenner School has taken over the Mulligan's Flat Guruya project, which is a fantastic reintroduction program and restoration project. We're looking at essentially what we got for the phone company. That's the investments in restoration on farmland, uh, right through now northern Victoria, right through to southeast Queensland 
uh, a project at Tumut that looks at, and Nanagro that looks at plantations and biodiversity in plantations. And what we're going to talk about tonight is work in the central highlands of Victoria, which first started in 1983. So our group specialises, as Lynn was saying, in large-scale long-term work. The projects with the shortest time frame now are the 12-year projects at Jarvis Bay. Uh, others have been running for 15, 17 and 31 years, respectively. Um, we have quite a large number of young staff members, postdocs, uh, mid-career researchers that add enormously to the, to the research momentum and the research training. And together we've been quite a productive group over the last 20 years or so. A lot of our work is associated with measuring things in the field, actually getting out there and doing things, finding out what's there and why it's where it is and how those things are changing over time. And this is an area from Jarvis Bay, but it could equally be from Victoria or in the woodlands areas of southeastern, uh, southwest slopes. So the forests that we want to look at now for the next 30 minutes or so are the central highlands forests of Victoria. And we're dealing primarily with the 171,000 hectares of montane ash forest. So that's mountain ash and alpine ash primarily. We've been doing this for a while. As you can see, I'm disguised here as a much younger man relative to what I am now. I still do a lot of this. And I think it's really important for scientists to do a lot of measurements in the field to maintain connection with what they're actually looking at. The area that we're dealing with, um, many people may not be familiar with, but the towns of Hillsville, uh, some people would know, famous for its sanctuary. Marysville has rather sadly become um, quite well known for the damage that it incurred in the 2009 fires. But there are many other towns which perhaps people won't be familiar with. Warburton is one of them, uh, going through to Rubicon, Taggarty, and further north to Alexandra. So it's an area of about 80 kilometres by 60 kilometres. And it's notable for many things. One of which are the tallest flowering plants on the planet. And this is one of our long-term sites. And there's a photograph of yours truly here. And so the fire history for this area dates back, we believe, to about the 1730s to the 1750s. Quite extraordinary forests. And there were even larger trees that now no longer exist in this forest. This is the Firmiston tree, about 10 kilometres from Hillsville. And you can see a large proportion of the, the people from the Fernshaw village, which is very close to that tree. This tree collapsed about seven to eight years ago. Um, and there are relatively few trees like this now, but once there were many, as we'll talk about. The best way to get a sense of the dimensions of these trees is to be able to compare them to um, a very well-known human icon here. And I'd have to say that the vast majority of Melburnians have no idea whatsoever that these trees are just an hour and a half's drive from the MCG. So they'll be able to tell you who plays full forward for Collingwood or Essendon, who plays halfback flank for Carlton or whatever, and they have no idea that these forests are where they are, quite literally. So these are very important forests for water. Almost all of the city's water supply comes from these forests. Um, and I think this is a very important issue, particularly as Melbourne's trajectory is going to be towards somewhere between six to seven million people, perhaps by 2030. Um, it's a topic 
that um, I have a particular interest in and my father-in-law has a, has a very intimate interest in this because he was one of the few water managers, engineers of this entire system that actually knows how the whole system fits together. And he's still one of the only people alive that knows how the different catchments and the different water supplies actually interact with one another. So last year we, we sat down and actually wrote a history of this together as, a, as an exploration of why the water managers in this area were actually 100 years ahead of their time. Quite an extraordinary story and it was all inside that man's head and what we needed to do was to bring that history out into a form that people could engage with. So these are also the world's most carbon dense forests and we've actually measured this. Most carbon work is actually modelling. In this case we've actually m measured not only the trees but the understory, the shrub layer, the tree fern layer and the logs and coarse woody debris that's on the forest floor. So that's the fallen timber, the branches, the leaf litter and the like, and put it all together. And we have sites with over 1,700 tonnes of carbon biomass per hectare. Really quite extraordinary. Also, these forests are really quite notable for their biodiversity. And one species in particular sends wildlife managers, forest managers, politicians, policy makers, and ecologists into apoplexy, and this is an animal called Leadbeater's possum. And it lives virtually nowhere else other than these forests. And it was the reason why we first started studying these forests back in the mid-1980s. The natural fire regime in these forests is rare, very high severity stand replacing fires. And that's exactly what happened in 2009. We had the largest loss of life of uh, any major fire. 16,000 properties were destroyed. That in turn led to some other research, which we won't talk about tonight, but the factors influencing uh, property damage. 72,000 hectares of the 171,000 hectares of that forest were burned at varying degrees of severity. And essentially these were the worst fires in Australian history in terms of loss of life. So these areas uh, burned at very high severity but also very high intensity. They're not the same thing, they're quite different. Intensity tells you about the amount of heat that's generated when a forest burns and the estimates are bordering on 90,000 kilowatts per square metre. Severity was also extreme but you have to measure severity on the ground when uh, you have a situation not long after a fire and that's exactly what we did immediately after the fire to measure the severity. This is part of Marysville where my wife and I had lived for some time. Quite a number of our friends formerly lived there and most of this township was destroyed. But also we had very much a personal odyssey in this. My wife's family were um, very badly affected by the same fires. So fire is a significant form of natural disturbance in these forests. There's also uh, human use of these forests that have a long history dating back well over 100 years. At the moment, logging provides direct jobs for about 370 people and the process of cutting in these forests is clear felling. And essentially what happens is that all the merchantable trees are taken off a site. Then uh, what happens is that you're left with logging slash on the forest floor, which is then burnt in a regeneration fire and then the new crop of trees uh, regenerates the stand. 
So it's a very efficient way of cutting the forest, but it also has some very significant impacts in terms of the change in the forest structure and the impacts on biodiversity, which we'll come to. So over the years, uh, we've studied these forests almost continuously. We now have people that are virtually living full-time and working full-time in the region. And since 1983, we've written a lot about logging impacts, fire impacts, forest structure, old growth, a whole series of issues to do with what's going on in these forests. And the most recent contribution was to look at IUCN, International Union of Conservation of Nature's new red listing of ecosystems approach. So many people would be aware that there's a, a list of threatened species from around the world. They may not be aware that the IUCN has now moved towards listing ecosystems as threatened, near threatened, etc., etc. We completed an analysis of the entire system in the Central Highlands region and under the red listing criteria it actually comes out as in serious danger of imminent collapse within the next 30 to 50 years and therefore it ranks as critically endangered. And we'll get to the reasons why that's the case in a moment. So this forest has been significantly altered in the last 50 to 100 years. So the remaining old growth forest, which was originally, we estimate, between 30 to 60% of the entire cover of the region, now mountain ash covers old growth that's unlogged and unburnt, only 1.16% of the entire forest estate. And overall, that encompasses about 1,887 hectares of forest, which are distributed amongst 147 different patches. So much reduced and now highly fragmented. The situation for alpine ash is, is uh, significantly more detrimental than it is for alpine ash. So some very substantial changes in a relatively short period of time. <coughs> so when you start to work with the data sets that the Victorian government has given us access to, you start to realise the extent of change. So we, we have maps of the ecosystem itself, and so it includes temperate rainforest, riparian thickets and other kinds of forests. And then we start to overlay our long-term monitoring sites, and there are over 160 of these sites which have been uh, extensively studied since the early 1980s. Then we start to overlay the fire in 2009, then the fire with our plots. About half of them were burnt in that fire. Then we start to look at the, the, uh, what's called the timber release plan, plus the logging history in this system. Uh, roughly half of the mountain ash forest has been logged in the last 40 years. Then we look at logging and fire overlaid on one another. And then a big fire, uh, Ash Wednesday fire in 1983. And what we see sprinkled amongst here are some of the areas of unlogged and unburnt forest. Not necessarily old growth, but unlogged and unburnt. If we want to zoom up to a particular area, this, for example, is part of the Tulangi Forest, north of Healesville. Um, these areas here that are hatched in yellow or brown are essentially what's been cut in the last 20 to 30 years or burnt in the last 20 to 30 years. So we see essentially these relatively small patches of 
blue and green that are left over in this system. So this is an area of about six and a half thousand hectares. So how has this happened? How has the system been so radically altered in the last 50 to 60 to 100 years? Well, essentially one of the things that happened, which many people may, have, may be unaware of, is that the history of uh, historical logging is really quite extensive. For many, many years, Port Melbourne actually had a, a greater amount of timber moved through it than cities like Seattle, even though Seattle has a much larger timber catchment. So extensive amount of timber was cut. Then more recently, since the 1960s, there's been extensive and intensive clear felling overlaid on the, his the historical logging in the system. So some of the responses have been really quite marked. We know from our uh, on-ground studies that animals such as most mammals don't leave the site when it's logged, they actually die in situ. So there's been an extensive amount of localised <coughs> mortality of animals on these cut sites. We also know from very recent work that <coughs> the current reserve system for Leadbeater's possum is inadequate, particularly since the 2009 fires. And that's some work that's been published uh, by the Victorian government um, and should come out fairly soon. We've also been studying the collapse rate of the very large old trees in the system. So why would we worry about these large trees? Well, what it turns out is that animals like Leadbeater's possum and 40 other species of hollow dependent animals live and nest virtually nowhere else. Animals like Leadbeater's possum can, on, can only nest in these large trees and when these trees collapse, they have nowhere else to live and they don't occur on those kinds of sites where those trees have been lost. So our old growth coverage, which is where we get the most numbers of these large old trees, has been reduced by somewhere between 95 to 97% of background historical rates. And the large old trees themselves that do exist in the younger regrowth forest will have declined by about 90% on background rates by 2035. So essentially what we see then is something like this. A, a rate of decline in the, large, in the number of large old trees. This is the curve rate here. If we add extra fire and, and extra logging into the system, we see these kinds of curves. On the other side, we see the relationship between the probability of occurrence of Leadbeater's possum and the abundance of these big trees. So there's actually a total mismatch between what's actually happening to the populations of these big trees in the system and the habitat requirements of animals like Leadbeater's possum, the greater glider, uh, yellowtail black cockatoo, and so on. So we're not in very good shape. We also see that the effects of fire and logging are not independent. So this system is now dealing with fire, it's dealing with logging, and it's dealing with a combination of fire and logging. So there's actually three kinds of disturbances taking place. One of those kinds of disturbances is, is a form of logging called salvage logging, where when a forest is burnt, then you salvage log that forest to recover some of the economic value of the trees that have been burnt. But there are other things that are taking place, which new research has been uh, uncovering. And that is the relationships between the age of the forest and the severity of the fire. And this work is, I know, quite controversial, uh, but it was published just uh, a couple of months ago, and essentially, the key part of the, the paper 
is this curve. And it relates the probability of fire to the age of the forest. And there's a, what we call a significant non-linear effect here. So essentially what's taking place is that there is very little burning, uh, very little canopy fire in forests zero to seven years old. From seven to about 40 years old, these forests are significantly more likely to burn at much higher severity with a crown fire. So what's happening is that the forest architecture is being changed by harvesting. The forest slash, which is the tree heads and the lateral branches which are left on the forest floor, the fuel loads are changing and it's taking some number of years for the legacy of that to work itself through the system. And that's why we get those kinds of shapes for uh, what's happening in this, in this forest. So we see quite different fire dynamics in these young logged and regenerated forests than we see in much older stands. <clears throat> so re repeated fire, higher severity fire in these forests has some pretty significant implications. One is that when a young forest keeps burning, it stays young and it's very difficult for that forest then to break out to become older forest. And when you burn young forest, the young trees don't develop hollows like they do if you burn a big tree. You end up with a small sapling that's burnt that quickly collapses and you don't get the pulse of big trees that animals like Leadbeater's possum require. There are other impacts which are also very controversial and contested in the literature. And one is that there's a cumulative effect of cutting the forest across the landscape, creating these small pockets of more fire-prone younger stands that together cumulatively across the landscape can change the fire regime. So when we look at, at Google Earth maps, we now see significant areas. For example, this is around the Royston area in the northern part of the Central Highlands, but we see something very similar in the Tulangi area, the Marysville area, the Powelltown area, the Borbore area, etc., uh, etc. Et and that is that we see landscapes with um, the history of past logging in the last few years, very recent clear cuts, and then relatively small areas of unlogged forest, which in many cases will be scheduled for logging in the next five years. The landscape pattern is significantly changed relative to the natural pattern. And um, some theoretical work that we've been looking at and now some more recent spatial work is showing that there's what we call contagion between areas of log forest with higher proneness being juxtaposed against other areas that are more fire prone, leading to the potential of fire movement right across these whole landscapes. And we will publish something on this in the next few months, leading to some deeper thinking about what we need to do to reduce the spatial contagion of fire movements across these landscapes. Very serious implications for how we try to manage fire in these fire-prone systems. This is also some work that's been led by other people in the Fenner School using our data on vegetation in these systems. We have looked at these forests in terms of their total carbon store, but we've also begun to look at what happens to the carbon storage of these forests when they're cut relative to when they're burnt. So a, fo a forest like these can burn at very high severity but still have about 85% of the carbon still in the forest. Whereas our estimates and our calculations and our actual measurements show that the amount of carbon left in the forest after cutting is about half after a 50 year period of the total carrying capacity that it would be if it was uncut. 
and that was published uh, a few weeks ago in the journal Ecosphere. And essentially the breakdown looks like this. We start with the biomass of the forest at 100%. About 60% of the forest actually stays in the forest during the harvesting process as logging slash. And about half of that is volatilised in the, in the slash burn that we saw the photograph before. And the other half, 30%, stays in the forest and slowly decomposes. On the other side, about 40% of the biomass is taken out of the forest and 29% of that 40% is taken into the pulp stream and eventually leads to about 20% of pulp products. 11% goes into the saw log stream, about 7% is waste, which leads to 4% sawn timber from the initial 100% biomass. So this is a carbon breakdown of what actually happens in the system. The turnover in paper products is about one to three years. The sawn timber uh, turnover in terms of carbon is between 30 to 90 years, if it's long-term sawn product. The reality though, when you look into actually what happens, is that half of that 4%, so if we go back to that 4% there, roughly half or 2% ends up as pallets for moving beer. I kid you not. And that has a lifespan of about four to five months before it then moves into the waste stream that way. So we've actually very carefully pieced together what actually happens uh, to the carbon store in these forests un under this process. So it does radically alter the carbon stocks and there's a significant reduction. At, this is estimated at about 50 to 70 years. This is a, a crude estimate for uh, old growth because there's quite significant variation. So roughly a third equivalent of your, your lawn power station for present cutting in terms of carbon emissions. We'll come back to what that means later. Essentially this forest is in significant trouble in terms of the change to the landscape, the changes to biodiversity, even the industry itself is in significant uh, straits, significant problem. Our estimates are from the Victorian government's own data that there are less, that there is less than 12 years of saw logs left in the ash forest system presently. 12 years. Okay, so we believe, based on our science, that there's a significant role for rebuilding this forest estate. And it's important for biodiversity, but it's also important for other things. It's important for fire management. The natural average fire return interval in this forest should be somewhere between 75 to 119 years. We've had 10 significant fires in this forest in the last 100 years. Significant role for carbon storage in this forest. Our estimates are that under the direct action plan, roughly 8% of the government's direct action target would be met by a policy change in these forests to store carbon. It's very important for water supply, particularly for a city that's moving towards perhaps five, six or even seven million people. And we believe other work done by other people based on that, significant economic benefits for tourism if we rethink what these forests are about. So, 
Out of sheer frustration with the Victorian government, failing to understand the extent of the problem in their own system, we've actually written prescriptions for how Leadbeater's possum might be conserved and how the forest might be restored. So we need to think about trying to prevent this animal which is on a clear extinction trajectory. It's now very hard to find this animal in these forests. It's very, very important to start thinking about how you regrow older forests where fire severity generally tends to be lower than it is in younger regrowth forests post-logging. And we need to think about this very carefully in terms of fire risk. Some people have suggested that maybe we should move the towns away from where these forests are. I think we probably need to think about how we manage the forests closer to some of these towns instead. The feedstock to run the Maryvale pulp mill does exist in the plantation sector and the estimates are that there's almost two times the plantation feedstock needed to run that, that pulp mill which takes 83% by volume of what's taken out of the forest at the moment. The plantation feedstock is actually the preferred feedstock when you talk to people from Nippon Paper and Australian Paper, which is quite interesting in itself. If you were to use largely plantation feedstock, it would have a significant carbon abatement value because you are maintaining the plantations as plantations rather than converting them to pastures, which would then have significant carbon emissions, and you would also conserve the carbon emissions in the, in the native forest. This is something that we've looked at, we've modelled, but not measured. The water part of these forests is also quite critical. We know that old growth forests yield significantly more, significantly more water. We know that the value of the water in these forests is estimated at around $2 billion, $2.5 billion, which is significantly greater than the pulp value. We know that this is some of the most expensive water in the world because we have a price on water now through the desal plant. And we know how many people we're trying to service with that water and potentially how many people we're going to have in the next 15, 20, 30 years in what will become Victoria's la Australia's largest city. So the desal plant creates an enormous price signal on water and it allows you to start to compare the relative values of the different products that come from the forest, be they water uh, and be they pulp or timber. One of the great unknowns, but one of the great potentials is probably tourism. As I said earlier, Everybody knows who plays full Ford for Essendon and nobody knows that these amazing forests are an hour and a half's drive from the MCG. And people have started to now think about the tourism potential of an area um, like this in terms of what it might look, look like uh, for people to, to actually go and experience this. So we have four million plus residents in Melbourne. We have in 2009, there were 14 million domestic uh, tourism visitors to uh, visit visitations to the city in that year and 1.4 million international visitors. So only a relatively small num proportion of those total numbers encouraged to stay an extra day or two in that area would have enormous impacts on regional domestic product in that area. In fact, the Premier's own website shows that this area is worth up to $10 billion in regional domestic product via tourism. Um, and, and it has had hardly any tourism development so far. 
We know that these kinds of tourism developments significantly alter regional economies, as we've seen in, in towns like Jeeveston to the south, except that this area has enormous benefits and advantages over those parts of Tasmania, in large part because significant areas of Tasmania are really not visitable for, for half the year, and it takes a lot to get people all the way to Tasmania to then go to, to some of these other extraordinary places. I have to say, though, that this amazing aerial walkway only cost $2.7 million to construct and has way overachieved in terms of the, the cost-benefit analysis. But there are other really good examples from around Australia. Um, the Lara Pinta Walk is a classic example of, an, of, a, of infrastructure that was put in that's had an enormous uh, boon for tourism. Um, in my own case, we have regularly walked in Fiordland in New Zealand. The New Zealanders do, do this kind of thing fantastically well, and it really is the key part of, of their tourism sector to bring people to these kinds of um, uh, areas, including myself and my kids. We have looked at these kinds of things from our own experience at, at Buttery National Park. This area receives 450,000 visitors every year. 450,000 visitors every year. It's a major economic driver for the region and it's been managed in a way that allows the enormous biodiversity values and other values, cultural values, to be maintained while still making it an enormous driver of the, of the regional economy in this place. So I think that this place is far more spectacular than Buttery and has far more potential, but it needs to be thought through about where you do this, how much of the forest is needed to restore the forest and to, where to bring people and where not to take people. The reason the water catchments were closed 100 years ago was to maintain the water quality, to reduce the cost of water treatment, and we don't want to be messing with that uh, in, in, uh, in this decade or decades to come. But we also want to make sure that this is not an area that's locked up, quote unquote, and then there's no infrastructure there to support these kinds of places to bring people into the forest. So we need to have serious walking tracks like they have in New Zealand and maybe semi-serious ones, but we also need to have other things like aerial walkways and different kinds of facilities to cater for different kinds of people and build the kinds of tourism infrastructure that I think is really needed to change the regional economies here that are in sharp decline. The local economies of Marysville, Warburton, Powelltown and others are really struggling and they need these kinds of infrastructure projects that don't have to cost a lot to change the trajectory of these kinds of areas. So that's the story. That's 31 years of perspectives on a truly magnificent forest, a forest that's in a lot of trouble, but one that, a forest that can be, can be saved and resolved with good science and good policy. And essentially, that's what I've been doing for the last three decades. So thanks for listening and thanks for coming. Turn my alarm off. Well timed. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Professor Lyndon Byer. He has agreed to take some questions, so if you have a question, now's the time.
Okay, so that's a good question. Um, I suppose we were very fortunate to have close to 25 years of pre-fire data on many of our long-term sites, and we were able to look at the natural regeneration taking place on burnt sites, sites that were subject to very high severity fire, sites that were subject to moderate severity fire, and sites that were subject to low severity fire, and we were also able to look at the age of the forest at the time that it was burnt. So we see that forests that were burnt at, at an age of about 15 years post-logging have virtually no natural regeneration on them at all because the trees essentially weren't old enough on those sites to produce viable seed to then produce a seed pulse. Perhaps surprisingly, the, 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 the largest amount of natural regeneration occurred uh, via what we call a Charlie Chaplin principle, and that was that the very, very oldest stands produced the, the highest density of young uh, regenerating seedlings. And what we think was happening there is that the oldest trees are putting most of their energy into producing the most seed, which creates the most seed rain during the process of even a moderate severity fire in those older forests. So we've been tracking not only how much regeneration occurred immediately after the fire and in relation to fire severity, but looking at the, the curve in terms of the decline in the number of seedlings. So if you start with half a million seedlings per hectare, as the trees grow, so many of these trees are now eight metres tall in these forests, some, of, some even higher, it depends on the productivity of the forest, you can't sustain that number of seedlings and so you see a self-thinning process and the self-thinning process um, also varies in the system. So um, the big danger in many cases has been the lack of natural regeneration on a large number of forests aged between seven and 20 that were burnt um, in the Black Saturday fires. And so there's a need to regenerate artificially quite a number of those areas. But what also happens in that artificial regeneration process is that a lot of the other key elements of the forest are lost. So some of the understory components uh, that should be in a natural forest to create a bit more plant species diversity are actually lost in the system. So we have measured that and plant species richness is about two thirds to a half of what it is in a naturally regenerating stand. Yeah. Gentleman down the back. The science suggests that you shouldn't be doing it. It's not a system that is that really uh, is adapted to to that kind of control burning. I, I understand the need for control burning. Um, I've been involved in papers that have talked about why it's important to do close to human settlements. Control burning close to Powtown and close to Nuji is probably important to do given the the risks in those areas because of the proximity of the forest, but for the forest ecosystem itself, it's, it's not um, a particularly good thing to do because it doesn't take much in a, in a prescribed burn to take a fire from the ground level to the understory into the canopy. 
and then essentially you've got a crown fire and in many cases you end up killing the trees. Um, so yes, prescribed burning is important in some places but you need to be careful how you do it, how much of it you do it, the frequency with which you do it and the objectives of what you're doing and what kind of property you're trying to protect. Um, if you're interested in that, I can, I can um, show you some links to some, some other papers where we actually began to look at the prop property damage uh, in the 2009 fires and what factors were important in that. Prescribed burning has an effect at reducing property damage, but a surprisingly small one. Okay, so that's, I'll answer that. that's a good question and I'll answer it in, in several parts. The first, the first thing that you do um, is you do what we call ecosystem accounting. And one of my colleagues, Michael Varden, formerly of the ABS but now with the Fenner School, uh, has expertise through the United Nations and the ABS to actually do environmental accounts where you look at the, the value of your natural resource in terms of its value for water, its value for timber, its value for pulpwood, its value for tourism, and anything else that you care to put together, and you, and you look at it in a standard accountancy framework, doing similar things that you might do in economics, where you, where you put together a set of national accounts for economic activity, you can put together a set of national accounts for environmental activity. And that's exactly what we've started to do in the Central Highlands area. We have the data on carbon, we have the data on water, we have some interesting data on biodiversity because for a long time Leadbeater's possum wasn't there because it was thought to be extinct. In fact, it wasn't even described from that area. So how you deal in an account with something that was there and then it was gone and then it's back again is, it will be an interesting challenge. So that's one of the ways that you look at these kinds of things. The, the second thing is that you can look at it in terms of raw numbers, just simply economically. Now the water value has been estimated by DEPI, Department of Environment and Primary Industries and Parks Victoria as having a value of around $2.5 billion a year relative to, for example, and that goes through Melbourne Water's accounts. You can look at what's happening with Vic Forest's accounts in the same way and there's quite a significant difference. At the moment Vic Forest's is roughly zero, plus or minus a million dollars here and there. Um, so there's quite a big difference. So it's the same person at the moment, Minister Walsh has actually got responsibility for both portfolios, water and forests. So he's probably quite a conflicted individual, but um, let's, let's not go there. My, my personal take on it, my personal opinion, is that when you're man managing public assets, then you manage them for the maximum public good. So one of, the, one of the key problems in this forest is that it should be a saw log driven industry. But at the moment, what's happening is that 83% by volume of everything that's cut from the forest is going to pulp. And that in, in itself creates problems by driving down the average age of the forest for producing saw logs, which actually need to come from older trees. So I think a restructure of the industry is 
is sorely needed. The, the industry is too large for the timber catchment at the moment. And, and I'm very concerned that we're dealing with a critically endangered forest, a critically endangered animal, and potentially a critically endangered saw log industry. And, and we actually need to do something about this very soon before the industry collapses on itself. And, I, and I, I'm not sure that I want to see that either. I think there is a time for thinking out a little bit further from just you know, the next five years to actually when we're going to hit a crunch, which is in 12 years' time when there won't be any saw logs at present rate of cutting, which is a disaster. Okay. okay, so the first thing that I would do would be to, to um, and we've started to do this, is to look at the maps of the area where we're most likely to have had old forest in the past and there's some good work to show where you're most likely to get old forest is on flat plateaus, south-facing slopes. Um, other kinds of areas where the fire severity historically was lower. We can also look at stand reconstruction work and see where we're most likely to have had older forest. And I would, I would start to put those areas, even if they're younger forest now, I'd start to put those in reserves thinking about forest restoration. But I would be thinking about those reserve, that forest reserve system not as a complete entity for the next 100, 200, 300 years. I'd be thinking about those in terms of what is this going to look like in 50 years, 80 years, 100 years' time. Uh, I think we have to take industrial clearfelling out of a significant part of the landscape as part of the restoration process, not because, only because of what happens at the site level, but because of what's actually looking to be propagating across the landscape level. And, and so I think the, the, the Great Forest National Park process is really important for the water value, the fire values, the biodiversity values and the tourism values. But it can't be the way that, that reservation has been in the past, where there's no infrastructure that goes into those small towns and no infrastructure that goes into the, the tourism component to it. That's, I think, been the worst thing that's happened in many places, is that people have made decisions and then walked away without actually thinking about what do you want this forest to do, but also how are you going to make the transition so that people can have access to that feedstock through plantations to maintain those other jobs. My concern is that presently you see 372 direct jobs in the forest sector. The present rate of cutting, there'll be next to nothing within 10 years. The industry is, is simply not possible to keep going the way it is at anything like the size it is. So you have to think about the transition about the plantation feedstock, what Maryvale pulp mill is going to look like, 
where the tonnages of, of feedstock are going to come from and, and think of it that way. And most likely, the most plausible outcome in terms of funding for that is going to come from carbon money, given the sheer amount of carbon. And then the Victorian government, of whichever persuasion, is in a position to then think about how it's going to transition these things, be it Labor or Liberal or purple or green or whatever a colour, they're all going to have to deal with this same problem, which is how little of the forest is left intact. And, and very nearly last year, in January, this whole thing was nearly solved. There was a fire in Powelltown, started in a logging coop, and it burnt for a week and a half, and it very nearly got away and basically burnt right across to... It would have gone. The fire modelling shows it would have gone all the way to Bore Bore and that would have been it. Totally finished. Done. So I wouldn't have to stand here and speak like this because the decision would have been made. So, yes. Thank you very much for Jeez. answering all those questions. And right now I'd like to invite, invite Dr Sue Packer AM, one of our ACT branch members and also ACT's Citizen of the Year last year in 2013 to give the vote of thanks. Thank you, Sue. Um, Professor Linton, uh, thank you very much for a very thought-provoking, decidedly depressing talk. Um, I think a lot of the talk that I give comes from the perspective of a paediatrician who works with children and young people. But it made me wonder, how do we stimulate the credulousness and curiosity of our adult population. We are so keen on not wanting to worry ourselves and not wanting to persuade ourselves that things are changing. Um, in my old age, I've taken to going on walks in Tasmania and New Zealand. And I think probably one of the most formative experiences in the very first walk was sitting in the middle of an old growth forest and being totally overwhelmed. I think it would be great if we could really encourage everybody to have an experience like that and then rethink the future. And perhaps end on a paediatric note, I think one of the most useful books for children is Dr. Seuss's book on the Lorax, which I think is a wonderful example of how to get even very young children to think of the implications for nature of your actions. And you've certainly done that for us today, so thank you very much indeed. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.